This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Wow, you went to the office. Twice, you know, and it no longer feels like the rapture happened and I wasn't invited, you know? I went a few times over the summer and had the rapture experience, but I liked it. I was like, all right, cool, I've been left behind, that's fine. Oh shoot, excuse me y'all, I smell something burning. Holy smoke! So I'm reading this cold, y'all, we'll be fine. Unfortunately, that sounds a little like famous last words. Here we go. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, my name is Jen Moon, and I'm an Associate Professor of Instruction and a Provost Teaching Fellow. Hi, my name is Stephanie Holmston. I'm an Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. Today, we're thinking about care, about well-being, that sort of elusive idea of balance. We could call it caregiving, caretaking, whether nurturing folks around us, neighbors, friends, and family, or caring for the young people in our homes, parenting, or through our care for the previous generation or the next generation, caregiving, and trying to find that life balance. Brad Love joins us today to talk to us about caregiving, parenting, and the work-life balance. Brad has served as the chair of the Provost Teaching Fellows and is currently on the steering committee. His primary research interests include investigating the persuasive capabilities of mass media, particularly as applied to pro-social topics such as public health. Brad is a member of the UT Academy of Distinguished Teachers. And Brad, we're so happy to have you with us. Welcome to the other side of campus. <laughs> so Brad, how did you come to your teaching and research? Both, I would say, as they do for everyone, come from a broad range of lived experiences. And for any of us, I think, you know, those would be multi-hour conversations all on their own. But in my case, they're connected in thinking about life experience and the kind of impact one wants to have on the world. And so the way that my best scholarship anyway happens and the way the teaching happens are really about these bigger picture outcomes that I think are important to all of us who work at universities. And so a lot of it is trying to help other people have better experiences than we did in a range of situations and how to be part of progress at the end of the day. You know, I really hear that. And I like your opening point there, Brad, of how we can only teach out of our own experiences. Our lived experiences is what informs us, gives us our sentiments towards our students, probably guides our research as well. Any reflections on your sort of past experience that have brought you here? Hours worth. I mean, ages. Ages, for sure. In fact, I spent my class yesterday, my signature course with the first year students, this is what we talked about for about 75 minutes because they really wanted to know. 
and I kept trying to set up a class and they just kept asking me questions about why we were here. And I would try to orient toward the practicality. And every time I made a comment about how human we need to be with each other in 2020, someone would unmute and ask me another question about X, Y, or Z. It was certainly different and it was very sweet, I think as well, in that they were doing it because they were seeking to know who was the other little square in ways they couldn't otherwise because they didn't have quite the same degree of nonverbal things to connect the dots, you know? That nonverbal is really cueing my experience in teaching this past week where I felt the Zoom mm. space gave me permission to comment on, I've actually never done a class completely online before. Mm. I am brand new in this environment and where I would always try and emphasize in class that learning is an experience of failing and trying new things. I certainly rarely tried to demonstrate that to my students as I stood behind the podium in that sort of classic <laughs> professorial way. And here in Zoom, it's like, yeah, I have not lived in boxes so long before and we're trying new things and we're learning new habits and we're gonna fail sometimes and now I'm finally modeling it. My undergraduate was, my undergraduate degree was in journalism and the way that degree was handled was almost exclusively experiential, where your classes were writing labs or editing labs or design labs. And that was how a lot of your work happened. So one of the byproducts of that is I'm really firmly anti-lecturing. I say all the time, and I'm admittedly trying to be a bit provocative, anything I have to say, I could write down or record, even in the before times. So why would someone come to a room just to hear me talk for 45 minutes? I, you know, we've been thinking a lot in the last several months. I know all of us have, and, and I should just put a timestamp on this right now. We are in our first week of the semester of the year, and all of us are now getting our feet under us or trying to about what it feels like to teach online and what is coming up that we maybe didn't anticipate. And thinking about you spending your first day talking with students about your experiences, I'm curious, how do you envision or how are you already supporting students and finding their own balance with work and, and their work, I should say, and kind of yeah. their social experience and all this? Yeah. My actual answer to Stephanie's earlier question that connects to this is I had a significant technology failure in that class that everything I had planned didn't work. The whole central process that I had mapped out in a lesson plan didn't <laughs> work. Oh my gosh. Because of a Zoom problem. And uh. so to your question now about helping them manage their own work, I don't actually know the answer to this question, but I can talk about my process, which is mostly gonna be a description of failure, but I'm trying to take in the data from the failure and do it better next time is I stopped and I said to them, okay, here's what I had in mind. You are witnessing when something's gone wrong and it's very humbling. I'm having some big emotions inside about this. I'm not gonna lie to you about that, but we're going to be okay. And I'm going to figure it out. If you can offer me grace for like three minutes here so I can click a few buttons, see if this is resolvable, we'll move on. And understand, so this was my introduction then to talk to them, I've tried to set things up so that you always get the same courtesy. 
So these are among the many reasons why I'm not taking attendance. We had just had a conversation about how I understand why a lot of your cameras are off, and that's okay, about the fact that we know things are going to come up. And as long as we are communicative with each other, which is its own kind of work. I know I'm asking for something, not small here. I need you to say to me, something's going on at home. I need a little bit more time on this module. My answer is just going to be, okay, and we're going to figure it out. It's more emotional labor for you. It's more emotional labor for me at a time in history where none of us have cognitive load to spare. We're all just under duress. And it's really unfair that they're having to deal with this. I'm saying that you're having to deal with this at a critical life stage of emerging young adulthood, where you're supposed to be, supposed to be, inverted commas, in this transition point. And you're not being permitted to do that by forces outside of all of us. But we're going to see what we can learn from it. And so we had a lot of that dialogue yesterday, which is, I think, what sort of made them feel empowered to ask me a series of personal and journey questions. What I love about what you're describing in that conversation, it strikes me that what you're doing is sort of going back to the purpose of the thing. So when the technology didn't work, the question was, what am I aiming to do here? And then everything else simply becomes a tool that can get you there. I've been thinking a lot this summer about, and again, more things that sometimes colleagues don't like to hear me say, the only things that matter in our classes, and this goes back to all this prior stuff about my own experiences, the only things that matter are modes of thinking and problem solving. Everything is metacognition. Anything that's not metacognition is garbage. The fact of the matter is any content stuff is outdated in fairly short order. The things that I learned when I think about even uh, beginning of graduate school about techniques for doing things, techniques for doing research, no one does those anymore. We have software for this stuff now, right? And instead, getting the students to think only about higher level things, about thinking like a historian, thinking like a biologist, what does this mean for problem solving? Because that, while it iterates, it endures at least somewhat over time. Those are the only things that matter. And so I was happy to be able to say that to them in the sense that as I try to do with my in-person classes too, but you're not getting busy work because we all know that doesn't matter. So just don't worry about that. Worry about principles and concepts in connecting idea A to idea B because that's gonna matter. So one of the things I do on every first day, and this is to try to help them manage to some degree their emotions of the perfectionism, because if you've made a mistake, you don't get into UT as a student. If you've made uh, an error, your journey is over. And then they come here and we say, oh, learning is all about trying and making mistakes. They don't have the skill set. Literally, they've never practiced it because they're the most dynamic young people on earth. And so to me, it's really important to say to them, look at how this is set up. It is set up such that even if you make a bunch of mistakes, there aren't grade consequences because I understand that's the coin of that's the coin of your realm. And we just have to be okay with that. So everyone, let's take a deep breath. <laughs> let's agree to go on this journey together. And let's agree that it's not going to be a linear journey. It's going to be all loop-de-loop, -loop, like a drinking straw from when you were five. And so that's the journey we're taking. But hopefully we can do it in ways that are emotionally useful as opposed to emotionally taxing. 
one of the things that really resonated when you were just speaking right now, Brad, is thinking about how you talk to your students and how you give them the space and language to to fail, to learn from it, to reframe what they how they think about not getting something right the first time. To bring it into kind of our professional context, I, I will say you are one of the colleagues that I so value for the reason that I know when I have a moment where I'm like, I am freaking out about all the things and, and all the work. And I know that you're always the person that when I talk to you, you're always like, here's some perspective. Like I always feel better talking. So I can just imagine how your students feel about having that from a professor, which you so, you so rarely hear that in an academic context. I wanna shift a little bit and move to thinking about our own as faculty, our own work-life balance. I know we are really struggling, we're all really struggling with that. So I'm not asking this because I assume you might have an answer at a solution, but I, I also appreciate that we're all kind of working this out as we as we go along. H- has Have you had some sense or intuition about how you wanna rethink about the balance now that we're in this kind of new world of being online and working from home all the time? It's been the hardest stretch of time. In March, in the before times, I was already struggling a lot as a person, just negotiating all of the various responsibilities one has to. And I didn't think it could get worse. And it's gotten a lot worse. It's gotten a lot, lot worse. So I have been trying to rethink what things can look like because I do know day to day, the volume's unacceptably high, just of being a human and staying upright. I'm not producing, producing in the work sense, not that we work at a factory or something, but I'm not accomplishing the things that I wish I were accomplishing. I'm also not doing things without meaning to me either. And and this is one of the challenges. And, And again, one of the ways that for the most part, we're so fortunate but especially people at my kind of mid-career stage in many ways are super fortunate that for the most part, I don't do stuff I don't want to do. And even that is unacceptably too much. But I also invite that because that was a pattern that worked. This is how you get through graduate school. This is how you get through kind of the early academic career stage, right? So it requires a new model in order to be well. I don't know what the model is. When you mention this idea of productivity, and often we use that terminology, right? I don't, some people have said to me, I don't feel as productive this summer as I normally am. Your comment just invited me to consider the times that I have felt like that makes sense to me. I'm not as productive this summer as I usually am, though I would say I was busy. What is production? And maybe this summer production was, we spent a lot of time as a community trying to prepare uh, for the fall, we spent time helping to resource other faculty members. We spent time learning about Zoom and the online life. Arguably, we spent time tracking COVID-19 and imagining what that might look like. All of us for sure leaned in on the decisions that the university was making and tried to support people. It's interesting now as I reflect back on the summer then, Maybe productivity was also that emotional work that we did, but I wouldn't normally call that what I produced. Yeah. Here's a data point you, I hope, will really appreciate. 
So I've been struggling among the many things, but one of them is I had a series of articles I was intending on finishing this summer that I have all the data for. I know what the analysis looks like, have often done initial analysis and so on. So I even have a concept of kind of how the hypotheses have borne out or not and all this stuff. I mean, it's roadmapped. I didn't touch a one of them. But as you say, thinking of other people's well-being is how we spent a lot of summer often collaborating together on these sorts of things to help our colleagues maintain some degree of sanity by teaching them about how Zoom works or to learn some pedagogy and so on, right? All with the end goal of offering the best possible experience to our students so that they could have this rich campus life that our young people are being denied to some degree right now. It's a different campus life. Hopefully it's going to be rich. I had a moment yesterday when I was asking them about this and what they said to me, and I've been teaching signature course for since the beginning, 11 years or something now. I asked them, how were your other classes? And it is the first time the uniform answer has been, all of my teachers were really well organized. Everyone was really kind and everyone seemed very understanding. So I'm confident this is going to be okay. I've never had a group of 18-year-olds say that before. I think that's about our community's work. It was a lot of, and it still is a lot of people, right? And colleagues in the Faculty Innovation Center who do it every day. But I think it's a data point that shows the outcome of where we invested our time this summer. So to your point a second ago there, Stephanie, right, where we may not be thrilled about how you or I might assess productivity for ourselves, but we moved the needle. I think one data point, we don't want to over-extrapolate, but <laughs> but we moved the needle, I think, as a campus about where we're going. And um, I'm really, yeah, I'm excited about what it means next. to think about it in terms of the size of the institution. I would say that my students similarly, someone said, well, for sure, this is not the spring. All of my faculty members seemed prepared. And that's not to be critical of us in the spring. We were doing the best we can, but I loved that message from the students. They were found, they found it relaxing to know that we seem to have a little bit better sense of where we're heading. That's a big boat to move, the University of Texas. A lot of faculty, a lot of departments, a lot of individual colleges, and yet to think that together we seemed to move in a good direction is nice to know. It's so wonderful to hear. And it also makes me feel so good about the work that we participated in this summer. I'm having a moment right now listening to that. I, I want to talk a little bit about something that we, we all share. I hope it's okay to say that we all have children in our house. We do. We do. Right and <laughs> I know that one area in which many of my colleagues and I, as we get together on these Zoom calls throughout the week, are sharing is just the the complexity that is having kids at home while you're trying to work. And, you know, there's this whole part about having your work life and your home life in the same physical space, which is new to maybe most of us. And then there's this other element of having your children 
also in your physical space as you're working. I mean, it's it's many things. Brad, you, you got to kind of approach it in a sort of, it's going to happen. You know what I mean? The, the kids will run in and I, and I know your attitude is one of acceptance and just look, this is how it is right now. How are you thinking, how are you talking to your colleagues about this issue of having childcare responsibilities? It is a frequent topic of conversation. And the thing that I keep going back to in my head because of how important in a lot of ways it was. But I say that, you know, as somebody who studies media, this is, of course, the example I'm about to draw from. In midsummer, there was a New York Times editorial, the headline of which was, you can have a family or you can have a job in the COVID-19 era, but you can't have both. And it was widely shared among sort of urban professionals and so on. And I thought that headline was really important. What I would argue is even more important was the conversation, was the discussion section next to it, where about a million people clicked on it and said, hello, New York Times editorial staff, you do realize women and ethnic minorities have known this for a thousand years. (laughs) You're only writing this story because privileged, wealthy white guys are now having this problem. And it was universal in the comment section. So I have brought that up a lot to have the dialogue. One of the things that pointed out to me, though, is as somebody, again, kind of mid-career stage, at least involved in some administrative leadership, um, having tenure, I've tried to make it a point whenever possible to bring up the topic and discuss it out loud so that people who, for whatever reason, maybe just because I don't want to, wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable bringing it up. But it's our reality. The borders are blurred for me, for the students as well, right? And in this case, like yesterday, it was a chance to talk to them about, I understand you're in abnormal times too. And this was part of the the thing I was trying to do to learn about them where Zoom, I had my technology problem kind of got in the way. But to give them a chance to talk about how their tutoring cousins who are having to do online classes. And because the UT student is back at home and she's available because the parents are all working, congratulations, you have this new family responsibility, which she's totally capable of doing, probably good at, in fact, actually, and wants to, to be supportive of her of her people, but where is she going to find the gas in the tank, right? And so the chance to bring up these parenting challenges is just the chance to bring humanity as it's appropriate. Not everyone wants to talk about it, of course. And that's okay too, obviously, right? But if I can normalize it through the things that I bring to the conversation, I think it helps everybody. I had a real humanizing moment in class on Thursday. My 120 students got to learn that the mail to my house is delivered at about 2.15, right in the middle of class. Then, of course, the dog needs to celebrate the mail delivery by barking, barking, barking. And you can't mute yourself if you're leading the class discussion. So we sat there for a whole half minute listening to my dog bark at the mail carrier. And then we pressed on. So, yes, life comes right in in Zoom. You've heard my son. I'm sure you've heard my son stomping over here. And this is just how it goes. He wants to be in the room while I'm doing things. And he might be playing with cars. He might be watching cartoons. He might be painting or something. But he wants to be in the room. 
thus there is just going to be other noise and distraction to the point for one of my classes, because the time of the class overlaps with his nap time, I can't be in our house. Our house is, we'll call it quaint. So we have a neighbor who's currently out of town. I've been using the neighbor's house just so that I can have some control of the environment. Because the fact of the matter is when there's a kid around or a dog or when you have an aging parent you're caring for or whatever, you don't have control. I'm really curious about how you are, and, and this goes for both of you, I guess. You know, when I'm at work, we have sort of a work persona, right? We have our professional hat on. And for me, that also includes a good dose of goofiness. But just, you know, I'm at work. And at home, I'm mom. I'm mommy. And I have a very different kind of disposition with my kids. And what's kind of a weird crashing of the worlds for me right now is I'm working, I'm teaching, da, 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 da. And then a little person comes around and is like, mama, I can't get this around. And I have to quickly get back into, okay, here you go, honey, da, 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 da. She goes out and then I have to be back into like, and now genetics. It's a little bit hard for me to transition that quickly and embarrassingly, in class yesterday, I called my TA hun. I don't think that's funny. Because <laughs> I was, I've never done that in my life. And you know, she, so she was doing, I said, could you, could you pull that file up hun? And I, and I think it's only because my child was just in front, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I'm losing it. My mind is growing. I can feel it. Have you had these experiences? The problem of code switching when we're trying to play multiple identities is just going to continue to be real. All of our heuristics, all of the little rules of thumb that we use to get through the day are broken. That's one of the reasons the historical moment is so very stressful, because we spent decades in a lot of cases for professional things, building up patterns such that we don't have to think about them, right? We're unconsciously capable of doing stuff because of decades of work. Those are all broken now and things are going to leak. One of the first things I was thinking about to your question though, is this situation also makes clear that as a father and as a middle-aged guy, and again, with a certain job title, I don't deal with those things because I do not have anywhere near the, na the same social norms or pressures to wear substantially different hats. I just get to be in ways that obviously are, these ways are horribly inequitable in the normal times. And just like that discussion section in the New York Times pointed out, all this does is make it more clear and more explicit who's benefiting from these norms. And when it comes to parenting and caregiving and so on, I always get the benefit of the doubt. When my son was a baby baby, when he was between one and two, I had to bring him to campus with me a few days a week because that's just how life was going at that moment. So I was walking around campus with his little carrier thing. And at that age, they're, they're kind of luggage. They're, they're predictable and so on. So it's all right. And I, I was sitting in meetings with him. And I would put his little thing next to me or sit him on my lap, whatever. And he would move, you know, they nap, they eat, whatever. Predictable schedule, though. Fortunately, bless this kid for being good at that. But the only response I ever got from people was, oh, that's cute. And then the meeting would just move on. If I were not me, 
there would have been conversations at least, and maybe there were behind my back, but I really, really don't think so. There would have been conversations about why I couldn't sort of get my home life together or be more responsible or whatever the case might be. And instead I got praise. Yeah, this is a barrier that is is coming to my attention too, for sure. Teaching from home, essentially, which is what we're doing, is that speaking about parenting to my students was something that I would choose to do typically later in the semester once I had already built up rapport, was never my first step. It was meet me as a faculty member first, later once I'm certain that you understand my experience and position here, we'll get into the parenting piece. Yeah. And I think that this is different for different faculties situated differently, where some would say it's an advantage to talk about their parenting responsibilities because that's seen as a humanizing element. And certainly statistics suggest that female faculty, for example, are seen as disorganized when male faculty are seen as, you know, have so many amazing things in their minds that they just didn't quite get the right material in the right place, but that's okay. It's because they're brilliant. The female professor is evaluated differently when she's disorganized. That's right. It's something I have, I've struggled with over the years when talking about teaching and learning. And then acutely so in this particular moment where we're also trying to design teaching and learning uh, particularly around our students' well-being. And that is, as to the point you're making a minute ago, Stephanie, where I don't have to stress those things. So my interactions in my classes get very personal very easily because I can. I don't deal with consequences for it. And so I think of all of my classes as maximizing wellness. I made the comment the other day, well, that, oh, I was for a uh, reading roundup, the pre-semester event where you touch base with a bunch of new students and just help them settle in a little bit. And I made the argument in response to something a student was saying that all books are self-help books. Otherwise, why would you write them? I stand by that. If if a novel doesn't help you see a character and go on a journey with that character to learn something, then it doesn't really have a point. Everyone in the English department is panicking and mad at me right now, and that's okay. I like having that dialogue. But from the same perspective, to me, every class is a self-help class. Otherwise, why am I doing it? If what we're doing isn't going to help you make your way in the world and thrive, there's no purpose, I would argue. But I can because I can make it personal and I don't get criticism. And I don't talk about myself a lot, but I can open the door for them to do so and not be judged for it in the same way. The word baggage is coming through in my mind, right? Some of us, if we were to share those personal stories, please don't bring your baggage into the classroom. That's right. That's right. And the thing is, I can invite the conversation. And in my experience, they don't bring baggage. Because part of me has that perspective, too. We're here to do work. Let's just do our stuff and get on with it, shall we? And part of me means that. But then I also have to recognize no work gets done until the humanity is addressed. So without getting lost in it, how do we strike that balance? I feel like that's the title of today. No work gets done until the, yeah. until the humanity humanities have yeah. I've thought about it a lot as we had the many conversations and continue to, obviously. And again, lots of other historical conversations about a range of policy issues outside of higher education. But 
the idea that how do we expect kids to learn when they're hungry? And as we look at homelessness and food insecurity issues among university students, including our university, how is someone going to get through organic chemistry who's concerned about what he's going to eat today? And the answer is he's not. So until we address that, we can't expect them to learn. Yeah. And, you know, we have concerns like that, you know, are sort of more physical concerns. And then I think right now the emotional concerns are are just as front and center That's of right. being anxious and and just feeling out out of sync. What's been interesting for me is to seeing how this affects my kids. You know, I, I always think, oh, they're doing fine. They're keeping themselves busy. They And my kids are all school age, so they're not babies. And I don't really have to watch them not, you know, stick their finger in a light socket or anything. But, you know, that they're still youngish. And I think, oh, they're, you know, they're fine. And then it always surprises me when suddenly they are not fine. Do you know what I mean? And it comes up all of a sudden. And I think, I mean, it's very human. That happens to me too, right? If I'm being honest, I feel like I've got it. I've got it. I'm fine. And then I hit a day where I'm like, I am not okay. And I am done. And I want off. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We need to address that as well. (laughs) A hundred percent. And to think about the fact that, you know, not only are we there with our home lives, like one of the things I'm really struggling with is since he has been out of we'll call it school, but this this daycare used to go a few mornings a week. But since that's been closed, he's regressing in some ways and he's doing fine. He is the happiest little fellow and it's all gonna reorient, but it's hard to watch him struggle at times. And then I'm trying to focus on what's going on sort of here, right? And to think about how many, well, the answer is like all of our colleagues in one way or another are dealing with this. And it's not something institutionally that we're screaming from the rooftops, that this is where our people are for one reason or another. And the idea, goodness, just the other day, when the storm hit the Gulf Coast, I had two people, and these were just the only two who brought it up, whose families lost homes in that storm this week. And they're supposed to be teaching classes and thinking about that and attentive to their subject. And again, the work has to get done, and they weren't complaining. They were they were there. They were moving on, you know, forward. They were doing what they needed to do to do right by our students and to do their jobs. They were doing their jobs in these admirable ways. But how much stuff can we paper over that's going on under the surface before we start talking about it out loud to keep our community of people well? And I think realistically, we're way past what we can realistically expect to paper over as a group of human beings. Yeah, I feel like I'm just at that edge. One of the things that is interesting to our previous conversation about sort of being at home is this commute that we all used to love to complain about was this buffer that created some space between the hats. I don't have a long commute, but my commute did include about a mile walk from my parking spot to my office because of the structure of the UT campus, that mile now I cherish. And my daughter and I were just thinking we might start our day by taking a walk around the block and then coming back in the house as if we left the morning home behind and came into some level of work. And so trying to remember what patterns of our day that used to seem so mundane actually represented things that we need and how do we put those back in? 
Oh my gosh, Stephanie, when you said that, it, it that's, you know, I'd noticed that very early on in this transition of having the kids home in the spring. And I found myself feeling super, I, I don't know what the, like high strung, I guess. And I realized exactly that, exactly what you're saying, Stephanie, that i used my day after I dropped the kids off at school and my drive into work, which is like 15 minutes to just start gearing up, thinking about my day. What do I need to do? And and likewise on the way home, processing what happened, thinking about what needs to happen tomorrow. And then when I got to the kids, I was straight on kid time. Fine. But I have zero transition now and it's constant throughout the day. So I was, I never had that reflective time And I had to build it. I had to intentionally build it in my day because I was losing my mind and I never realized the value of it before. That's a really great insight and set of suggestions. And this is what I mean about why we need to make these things explicit. We're dealing with all these implicit pressures. And until we make them explicit, they just bottle up and lead to us and a lot of our colleagues having hard moments and hard stretches of time and hard year to say the least. Thinking of those pressures, you know, also some of those parenting pressures that we might put on ourselves. You know, my daughters are teenagers. This is the time that they should be getting a lot of cues from their friends instead of us. And instead I'm staring at them all day long, right when they need space. And I feel guilt. And this makes me think I give Mm -hmm. myself grace in the classroom. Maybe I can give myself grace in the house too. to say, this is not the arrangement that I chose for us, that any of us are at fault for, but here we are. And the grace comes in those choices that we make on how to balance it all. There's, and there's value so much in you saying that out loud. Like you just saying that we're not in the same household. (laughs) You just saying that I felt myself change because, and it was something, again, we've already discussed it today. But instead of me saying that, I heard you say it. So now because you said it, it automatically has credibility because a smart person just said it to me. (laughs) I was talking to the students the other day about expecting them as a university, us expecting them to do work also at this historical moment and the national and world events that they're trying to process that are intimate and impactful and scary and demanding their brain space at the same time they're for the 18 year olds, for the, the first year students in particular, or transfer students as well, of course, they're upending their lives more than they ever have. And we expect them to be able to perform. Well, thanks, Brad, for your time today helping us. I am struck by the power of talking out loud about these things with other people. It reminds me of the power of faculty learning communities where we can be whole and complete people in front of each other. I appreciate it, Brad. Thanks, Brad. That was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for making this go. So Jen, what struck you about that conversation? I, you know, here's the thing that's so wonderful about Brad and and the many conversations I've had with him over the while that I've known him. He's a very authentic person. And what he models for us as faculty is so powerful. You know, the, the way he can just call it and say, look, this is really hard and I'm struggling too. And I'm doing the best I can. I mean, just like he's modeling for his students, he is modeling 
that authenticity and vulnerability for his colleagues. Yeah, I agree. And the way that he draws from his life experience and sort of pushes that to his students in terms of, it's hard for me. It must be hard for you too. The power of being able to see his own experience as instructive for what students must be going through too. The other thing that is so attractive is how his purpose in the classroom is to prepare human beings ready to find their way in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, when I'm looking at my syllabus and I'm thinking, man, you know, this week is a little light on the readings. Well, maybe it's giving students space to think about it a little bit more deeply. We're having kind of a slow start to the semester, but I think it's in there because we need to get our feet under us in this new environment. And when I hear Brad talking, it helps me give myself the space to realize that the work that we're really about is trying to be good humans in this space and to help younger people prepare to be good humans in their space. Absolutely. I, it's, it's a really powerful message and I'm, I need to hear it a hundred more times. You know, you get tied up in your own head about what you should be in quotes doing. So I thought this was just wonderful to hear and, and a good reminder to all of us to really pay attention to those fundamentally important things that we're doing as professors. Jen, I'll say one thing that really struck me as well is your description of how you are constantly putting one hat on and then switching it with the next and that in many ways from home i feel like i am both managing the responsibilities that i have at the home along with my work responsibilities without that buffer of changing locations or commuting and i want to be more mindful as i'm switching those caps to find some patterns that help me make that feel real yeah absolutely thanks stephanie this was great thanks jen always good You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Well, I, you know, it's funny because as I'm doing this, I'm always thinking like, oh, that's another edit she's going to have to do. Like, PG with language, one assumes. Stephanie has a mouth like a pirate. I'm a little worried. Giving my dog the hairy eyeball to make sure she doesn't start barking. My sounds okay? It's good for me anyway. Okay. Good for me. Are you ready, Stephanie? Because you're still typing.